as I introduce myself, it's, it's good to be here. We're blessed to, uh, to be uh, with you this morning to worship God. And uh, just like us, if you are a visitor, I'm happy that you're here. And I'm sure the members here at Green Forest are happy that you're here as well. I invite you to turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 7. I want to use that as kind of our jumping off point this morning. We're going to be talking about the faithful God this morning. Uh, we're going to read a passage from Deuteronomy chapter 7 here in just a minute, but to kind of prepare our minds for that, I want you to think about your best friend. The person that you may consider your best friend. It may be another uh, a member of this congregation. It may be a member of the community. It may be your spouse. Best friends come in all different shapes and sizes, but I want you to think about your best friend. What draws you to that person? What makes that person your best friend? Uh, there may be a lot of different reasons. Maybe they did something for you in the past. Maybe you met them on the street. Maybe you met them in a hospital room and, and you were drawn to that person. But I'm, I'm, you're probably drawn to that person because they've built, you, they've built trust in you in some way. You trust that individual. Whether it's something that they did for you, something that they gave you, they have proved themselves worthy of your trust. But regardless of how close we are to another person, regardless of how close our best friend may be, at some point they may let us down. Because they're not always going to be perfect. They don't always do things the right way. Sometimes we make mistakes and we mess up. But God's not like that. God will never do us wrong he will never be unfaithful in any way. And there's a simple reason for that. Because God is not faithful in certain circumstances only. His very character, His very nature, His very essence in and of Himself is faithfulness. It is impossible for God to be unfaithful. And Deuteronomy chapter 7 verses 9 through 11 help us see that. It says, No Therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their, to their faith those who hate Him by destroying them. He will not be slapped with one who hates Him. He will repay Him to His face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the that I command you today. That passage plainly tells us that God is faithful and He's faithful to three different groups of people. Number one, He's faithful to His very own people, in this case being the Jews, in our case, to His church. God is faithful to His people. But in the second place, He's also faithful to people who may become His people in the future. Those that are drawn to Him, they may not be part of His covenant community yet, but they are at least drawn to who He is as a God, as the God of the Jews. But He's also faithful to people that have no willingness at all to live by His commandments, to be a part of His community. God is faithful in all of those different circumstances. How can God be faithful in all three of those circumstances and to all three of those groups of people? Because He is the faithful God. His faithfulness is not just seen in certain circumstances. It's seen in His very essence and in His very character itself. 
So what I want us to do this morning is I want us to look at a couple of passages that help us see some characteristics of God's faithfulness. And even when you and I uh, may not be as faithful as we need to be, or even when you and I may show signs that we are weak, that God still stands faithful. Here's the first thing that I want us to look at. Let me make sure this works. I'm going to turn this on. Good deal. All right. The first thing I want us to notice, if you'll turn your Bible to uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, we notice that even when we are faithless, or even when we lose faith, God remains faithful. In 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 13, uh, we'll go back and look at verse 10 here in just a little bit and build more of the context. But in verse 13, Paul writes to Timothy and says this, If we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. So even when I'm not as faithful as I need to be, God remains faithful. In other words, His faithfulness is not dependent upon my faithfulness. Does that encourage you? It encourages me because I can think of times where maybe I had an attitude that I shouldn't have had. Maybe I said something that I was not supposed to say or maybe I wish I would have acted differently in a certain situation and then I go, I leave, I, I go away with my head sh- uh, falling down and shaking thinking, man, I wish I would have done it differently. I know God's not pleased with me in that occasion. I should have done this or I should have done that or I, I should have said this. Whatever the case may be, I wasn't as faithful as I should have been in that moment. But I know that regardless of whether I'm faithful or not, God remains faithful. Because His very character, His very essence is faithfulness. There are a couple of things that I'm reminded of when I look at this passage and I think about my unfaithfulness at times versus God's complete faithfulness at all times. And I'm encouraged because of a a couple of different things that are able to happen as a result of that. First of all, I know that because God is faithful in all circumstances, that He is able to do what I need done for me when it comes to salvation. In Romans chapter 3, Paul makes a statement. You can mark your Bible at at at, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2. We'll come back there here in just a second. But Romans 3 and verse 3 is a passage that I think parallels well with 2 Timothy 2 and verse 13 because it reminds us that we have the opportunity to make a mess of things that are great. God blesses us. He gives us all kinds of different things. But I can do something negative or something bad with those things that He gives me. And in Romans chapter 3, we'll just begin reading in verse 1. It says, then what advantage has the Jew? Paul's been talking about Jews, are, they can't be saved by the law. Uh, they have their law, but they're not going to be able to keep it perfectly. Well, what then advantage is a Jew then? If they can't keep their law perfectly that saves them, then what's the point? Well, Paul says, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were with the oracles of God. What a great blessing, right, for the Jews to be able not only to have God's entire law, but to have the message of the coming Messiah that's going to redeem not just Jews, but all the nations of the earth through the promise of Abraham, right? Going back to Genesis 12 and verse 3, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through Abraham. They had that message. 
to be able to carry to the world and to be able to preserve and protect. We have the same thing in 1 Peter 4 and verse 11. When we speak, we are to speak as one who speaks oracles of God. But what did the Jews do with this? Well, in verse 3 it says, what if some were unfaithful? Did every Jew accept the Messiah when he came? We have the opportunity to make a mess out of great blessings. I can remember a time where I was a little kid. I was probably about 10 or 11 years old, I guess it was. And my dad was preaching at a small church in Paducah, Kentucky. And one of the members of that congregation gave us, you may remember Sammy Kershaw. I don't know if y'all listen to country music. But Sammy Kershaw had a song out, Don't Go Near the Water, I think is the name of the song. Well, my brother and I loved that song, and we would listen to it every time it came on the radio. But we couldn't listen to it because we didn't have the CD. Well, this older lady at church gave us the CD that had that song on it. We were so excited, we immediately ran to the car to listen to this CD. But as soon as we ran to the car, we both ran to the driver's side. We started fighting over who's going to sit in the driver's side. Well, I had the CD in my hand, and you know what I did with it? I got mad, and I threw that CD down on the, car, on the parking lot, and the CD slid across that concrete, and the CD never played. Here's something that this lady gave us that we're supposed to be able to enjoy, but I broke it. And it reminds me, every time I think about that, I think about what Moses did with the Ten Commandments. When he came down from Mount Sinai up there of 40 days and 40 nights, he comes down, he's got this great message, he's ready to tell the people what he's just received from God, but here they are worshiping a golden calf. What does Moses do? He slams them down on the ground and breaks them. Thankfully, God in His faithfulness rewrote those commandments and gave them back to Moses on new tablets of stone. But we have the opportunity to make a mess or we have the, the ability to make a mess of the great things that God has given to us. But what does Paul say in the very next breath? What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. God can meet the demands of our salvation regardless of whether I'm faithful or not. How in the world does that take place? Because God is the faithful God. Turn back with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2 because I wanted to look at Romans 3 first because it talks about meeting the demands of our salvation. Okay, well, so what happens when we are saved? Well, one of the things that we are supposed to do as Christians is teach others about Jesus. Teach others about the faithful God. Well, in 2 Timothy 2 and verse 10, Paul talks about our unique ability to teach people. We have a unique teaching aid in God's faithfulness to help each other, to help people in the world understand the beauty and the glory of the church and the blood of, his, of God's Son. But in verse 10, Paul says, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. And so it's in that context that Paul talks about the faithfulness of God. I endure everything, Paul said. Paul, why in the world 
Do you continue to be beaten? Do you continue to go through shipwrecks? Do you continue to go through these sleepless nights and these hungers and, and all of these different things that you go through? You're constantly going through these things. Why? Because God is faithful. When we are faithless, He remains faithful. See, God's faithfulness is not dependent on our faithfulness. That should encourage us because we serve a faithful God that's willing to meet everything that we need in any situation of our lives. doesn't mean that every time I do something wrong, I'm unfaithful. But it just highlights the possibility that I'm not always going to be exactly like God wants me to be. But what do I do with that information? What do I do with those shortcomings? I turn my heart to a God that remains faithful in all circumstances of life. Also, we can know that God's faithfulness is not just something that happens in certain circumstances. It is a characteristic of His very essence. Because when we are burdened with temptations, God remains faithful. 1 Timothy chapter, or excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. This is probably a passage that most of us are, are familiar with, I think. But in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 13, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, Paul says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So not only is God's faithfulness not dependent upon my faithfulness, God's faithfulness is not dependent upon how I overcome temptation or how I treat temptation, whatever the case may be with temptations, because God's faithful regardless. I may be burdened with temptations, but doesn't transfer to God. This encourages me as well because of a couple of passages we read in the New Testament. James chapter 1, verses 13 through 15, the passage that was just read for us. That passage talks about how God is immune. First of all, He's immune to temptations. Maybe you've known people that... I've read articles and, and watched TV shows about people that go to foreign countries. There's uh, children or... or in foreign countries that are having trouble with all kinds of illnesses. There's a bad sickness just running rampant through the community. But there's an individual that's immune to that sickness. And because they are immune to that sickness, what do they do? They hop on a plane and they fly to that foreign country and they help those people out. What do we deem those people as? We deem them as heroes in many respects. Because they're willing to go right into the middle of all of the chaos, right in the line of fire to do what needs to be done to help those people in that situation. And that's largely what God has done for us in sending us Jesus Christ to be the propitiation for our sins. He is immune to temptation. Temptations will not bother Him, but He does it because He knows that sometimes we are burdened with those temptations. But we also know, not only is God not immune to temptations, we also know that we cannot blame Him for temptations. Because He can't be tempted with evil, nor does He tempt anybody. Let nobody say, when I'm tempted, I'm being tempted by God. I can't say that. Because God's not the, result, God's not the reason for my temptations. 
Sometimes we, we want to uh, focus on God whenever we do things that are wrong or whenever life is hard. And we, God, why are you allowing me to go through this? Why won't you, let, won't you help me? It's kind of how Job was when really our focus should be on Satan, the one that's causing those temptations. God is the faithful one that allows us to overcome it and endure those temptations. I'm also reminded of what Paul said in Romans chapter 7. We talked this morning about Peter and the apostles and, and how their willingness to do what needed to be done on the day of Pentecost, to preach that message and to take the gospel into the whole world, how that reflects on us and our willingness to do the same thing that they did. Well, I think about Paul and the perhaps one of the most faithful Christians that we will ever know. We read about him in the New Testament, but he says in Romans chapter 7 that when I want to do what's right, I find myself so often doing the exact opposite and doing what's wrong. If Paul is burdened with temptations, then how do you think we ought to feel? What did he say at the end of that chapter in Romans 7? He said, he's going to deliver me from this. Thanks be to Christ Jesus our Lord. How can He deliver us? Because temptations don't bother God. He is the faithful God. In Romans 10, or excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, there's a word here that, be honest with you, I overlooked, and I've always overlooked until this past week when I was studying for this sermon. It's the word overtaken. No temptation has overtaken you. That one little word reminds us of something that we need to keep in mind when it comes to temptations. That temptations can be lingering at times. I'm not a Greek scholar or anything like that, but this idea of overtaking, the way that Paul uses it, is it doesn't just happen once. It happens, but the effects continue. They linger on. And so it's not, that's why the, the word is used as overtaken. Because it's not just something that happens once and then goes away and you never think about it again. It happens, but it continues to linger. But God's faithfulness lingers as well. And so what Paul's saying here is not that temptations, we go through them all the time and then we think about this faithful God and we can, over, we can endure it and overcome it. It's more than that. It's when the temptations linger, we understand that God's faithfulness lingers and endures right along with those temptations. See, He can linger along with the temptations because He's not affected by it. He's always there, but not always, not just there, but providing the way of escape. Now this way of escape, some people think that this is just something only known in the mind of God. God, only God, knows the way that He's going to provide to escape. Well, that may be true in some circumstances, but I don't believe that encapsulates everything. I believe that God has provided for us a teaching tool, a way to overcome temptation right here in His Word. And it's in none other than the character of Jesus Christ. We could look at the character of Jesus and the way that He handled the temptations in the wilderness. We'll read about that in Matthew chapter 4, Mark chapter 1, and Luke chapter 4. But the same way that Paul uses the word undertaken 
or overtaken, excuse me, in this passage, is the same way that he uses the, the phrase, it is written, the way that Jesus overcame all of the temptations in the wilderness. How did he overcome them? He quoted Scripture. Scripture that wasn't just written and then never uh, stands for uh, all time, or it wasn't just written by Jesus at that particular time. It was something that was written over a thousand years prior to Jesus using the passage. And so how do we overcome temptation? One way is the trusted method that we have as Scripture. Not only Scripture, but Jesus' character, the model that he uh, exemplifies for us in life. That's the way that we overcome temptation. But the point is this, that God can, over, can allow us, can help us overcome temptation because He is the faithful God. His character is faithfulness. There's one more passage that I want us to look at. One more idea. God is faithful even when we question another person's sincerity. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians is a book where Paul's spending a lot of time defending his apostleship in this book. It uh, doesn't mean that this is the only place where Paul does that. Uh, he does that in many other places in Scripture as well. Um, but I, wanna, I think it's important for us to kind of build the context of 2 Corinthians chapter 1 to understand what Paul's talking about. When he uses verse 18, he says, As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaim among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. What's Paul talking about? Well, first of all, we have the ability to fail in doing what we said we were going to do. Now that may be for a couple of different reasons. It may be because a person is untrustworthy. I had a friend years ago, I considered him a friend years ago, but anyway, he called me one day and he asked me, hey, do you want to go with me to do this? I can't even remember what it was. But he wanted me to go with him somewhere, and I said, sure, I don't have anything going on today. He said, great, I'll be at your house at 2.30. Well, I got ready, sat on my steps at 2.30, waiting on him to come. 2.30 came around, he didn't show up. Waited till 3 o'clock. He still hadn't showed up. Waited till 4.30. He still hadn't showed up. And I'm calling him ever so often, and he's not answering his phone. Come to find out, he just decided to make other plans, but he didn't inform me he was making other plans. We can fail to do that, even if we, we may choose to do the exact opposite of what we said we were going to do, or sometimes... Our plans change because of an emergency or maybe a tragedy has occurred. Uh, you watch those crime scene investigation shows and they'll interview the, the friends or the family members or co-workers and they'll say, I knew when that person didn't come to work that something was bad wrong because that's just not like him. Or I knew that when they didn't answer their phone something was bad wrong because that's just not like her. The person didn't do what they were supposed to do, but it wasn't their fault. It was a tragedy. It was an emergency that took place. Well, that latter thought is what we need to connect here with Paul. Because Paul said, he promised the Corinthians, his plans were to visit them on his way to Macedonia, but then to visit them again on his way back. 
And verses 15 through 17 tells us that that's what Paul's plans were. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way back to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh? ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time. And it's in that context where Paul says, as surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. In other words, Paul said, I wasn't just blowing smoke. I wasn't just telling you what I thought you needed to hear or what might lift you up and encourage you. I was telling the truth when I wanted to do this, but I didn't. Now, thankfully, Paul tells us why he didn't. Two reasons why he didn't come. And I think it's important for you to see this to understand why Paul didn't do what he said he was going to do. The first thing is that Paul didn't want to spare them pain. In chapter uh, 1 verse 23, it says, But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. In chapter 2 and verse 1, he said, For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. And so Paul wanted to give them a gracious visit, a second experience of grace, he said. But when Paul came to the Corinthians, it wasn't going to be a happy, pleasant visit. He was going to have to spend a lot of time rebuking them because of some things that they did wrong. Paul wanted to spare them of that, that pain and that rebuke. But the second reason is found in verses 12 and 13 of chapter 2. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. Paul expected to find his brother Titus when he came to Troas, but he wasn't there. Where's Titus? What's happened to him? Has something bad... Is there some tragedy that's taken place? He couldn't get Titus out of his mind. So what he decided to do was go on and try to find Titus to figure out what had happened to him because he was concerned for his brother. Now later on in chapter 7, verses 5 through 7, we do learn that he meets up with Titus and everything is alright. As a matter of fact, Titus gives Paul a good report about the Corinthians, that they're doing well. But those were the two reasons why Paul chose not to go to Corinth the way that he said he was going to. But you can imagine what's going on. I mentioned earlier that Paul's defending his apostleship and he chooses uh, for this to be the first thing that he starts talking about as he defends his apostleship because there are false teachers in Corinth that are having a heyday with this idea that Paul didn't come to Corinth like he said he should have or like he said he was going to. And so you can't trust Paul. He's not a real apostle. You can't trust his gospel, his message. None of those things. You cannot trust him. And so Paul writes 2 Corinthians bolstering his apostleship, bolstering his message in the gospel. And he uses God's faithfulness to help him do that. In verse 18, verses 18 and 19, he does a couple of things with God's faithfulness. First of all, he uses an argument that a lot of people do in the ancient world. It's an argument from greater to lesser. Basically, the argument is this, that if something that is greater is true, then the lesser is true. 
And that's what he does in verse 18. As surely as God is faithful. Is God faithful? Nobody in Corinth is going to question whether or not God is faithful. And so since God is faithful, this thought that you know exactly to be true and there's no question about it, then what about me? I'm faithful too. If God is faithful and I've been sent to preach the message of God and He's the one that called me to be an apostle, then you can trust me too. But then in verse 19 he says, if I wasn't, Jesus Christ would have never chosen me to be an apostle. And so what do we learn from this? Well, a couple of things I think we learn, and we can find both of these in the Gospel of Mark. One thing that I think we learn is that we ought to let our lives be a demonstration of the beauty of what the Gospel message is all about. In Mark chapter 14... Mark chapter 14, Jesus is at Simon the leper's house. They're enjoying a meal together and all of a sudden there's this woman that takes an expensive jar of ointment and just pours it all over Jesus' body. And the disciples start looking at each other thinking, what is he doing? You know how much we could have sold this jar of ointment for and given it to the poor? But she's just dashing Jesus all over with this stuff. What does Jesus do? He says in verse 9, or go back up to verse 6 first. He says, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And now listen to verse 9. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Did you catch what Jesus just said? When people preach the gospel, guess what they're going to be talking about? They're going to be talking about this woman. But not only are they going to be talking about this woman, they're going to be talking about what she did with this expensive jar of ointment. Her life is going to serve as a demonstration what the gospel message is all about. Is that the way our lives are? When people are talking about the church, when they're talking about Jesus, do they have our character in view? People ought to understand what the church is all about and the beauty of the church in many respects by looking at the way the church lives its life. If we live our lives the way that we are supposed to, then other people are going to understand what the church is all about, not just because they read about Jesus, but they saw Him, His life, exemplified in those that claim to be followers of Jesus. That's exactly what this woman did. And as the Gospels preached... Her life is going to be talked about as well. But we also learn from what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1 verses 18 and 19 that when it comes to sincerity, we don't use sincerity as a cover-up for good behavior. That's what the Corinthians are doing, the false apostles are doing in Corinth. They're basically using this idea of sincerity and they're pinning it against Paul to make the Corinthians forget about him, forget about the message that they have heard from him, forget about what he's told them as being an apostle. 
they're using that sincerity against him rather than to bolster his character. And the Pharisees do the same thing with Jesus. In Mark chapter 12, verses 13 and 14, Mark 12, verses 13 and 14, it says, They sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. Now, this verse has always intrigued me because the Pharisees and the Herodians do not like each other at all. But they're willing to come together when it comes to trapping Jesus. The same thing happens with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It's just always been interesting to me how that happens. But what are they doing? Verse 14, they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Do the Pharisees and the Herodians, do they really, do they really care about Jesus' sincerity? Do they really care about His trustworthiness? They may feel He is a trustworthy individual. In other words, when He says He's going to do something, He certainly does it. They may feel that way, but that's not their motive for calling attention to it here. Their motive for calling attention to it here is to trap Him in something that they don't really want to follow and obey. And the Corinthians, the false apostles in Corinth, did the exact same thing to Paul, and they did the exact same thing to the Corinthian Christians. Look, sincerity is a virtue. Trustworthiness is something that we need to hold dear and we need to be proud of. Not something we use as a cover-up for evil behavior or to pin against somebody else and call them out on something that we don't like. But it all comes back to this thought that all of these things are important. And if I wanted to, I could make this a series of lessons because there are more verses that talk about God's faithful character. These are just a few I chose to pick out. But they all come back to us doing what we do, being the people the Bible teaches us to be, not because of who we are and our character necessarily, but it all goes back and reflects who God is and His faithful character. And so it's impossible for God to be unfaithful. As I've said a couple of times in this lesson, I'll say it again, that is a big encouragement to me. Because there are times when I don't always do what I ought to do. There are times when maybe I say something I ought not to say. There are things when maybe I have a different attitude than the one maybe I should have. It's all about being weak because I'm not always as faithful as God because it's impossible for Him to be faithful. But even though I can be unfaithful, God still looks at me and trusts me with His message, trusts me with the church and the lifestyle that He has called me to live. Let's live as faithful Christians Let's be the people that God wants us to be, not because we believe in ourselves only, but because we believe in the faithful character of God Himself. If you're here this morning and you're not a member of the church, you have the opportunity to do that. It may be that you're here and you have questions about the church. What, how do I become a member of the church? What is the church? What, is, what does all of it involve? And you have questions 
The answers are found right here in Scripture. And we can help you find those answers this morning. Maybe you have been baptized for the remission of your sins and been added to the Lord's church, but you haven't been as faithful as you should be. And you want to change some things in your life. You want to ask for prayers. You want the elders of this congregation to pray for you and to help move you in the right direction. You have the opportunity to make that claim as well if you'll come as we stand and sing. If you're tired of the load of your sins,